Hello, and welcome to the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation CISM Live Series, where we connect with critical incident stress management subject matter experts live on YouTube. My name is Kelly, and I'm the development coordinator and host of the CISM Live Series. If you enjoy the content being shared today, please consider giving this video a like and subscribe to ICISF's YouTube channel to be notified the next time we go live. We also have a free item for all of our live viewers today, so be sure to listen until the very end of the discussion to learn more. My guest speaker today is Dr. Stephanie Kahn, who is a former police officer, as well as the daughter and wife of police officers, and is a licensed psychologist at her practice, First Responder Psychology in Portland, Oregon, specializing in first responder stress, trauma, work, identity, coping, and resilience. She supports first responder agencies with CISM, peer support, and mental health training. She's the clinical director of Public Safety Assistance Network, a group of culturally competent clinicians who provide services to public safety agencies and assist in vetting clinicians for agencies in need. She has presented widely to first responders, sharing wisdom gained from her police experience, her research, and her therapy practice. She is the author of Increasing Resilience in Police and Emergencies Personnel. Welcome, Dr. Khan. Thank you. Thank you. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it is. a culturally competent piece. You're like, it's a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> so today we're going to be discussing critical incident stress management, peer support, law enforcement, mm -hmm. and even tips for individuals, peer support teams, and agencies. Mm -hmm. um, but first, if you could please tell me about your transition from a police officer, peer supporter to psychologist to give us a sense of how you approach your work with first responders. Yeah, I love that question because not because I love to talk about myself, but because I like to highlight um, my why and because I like to highlight um, my why in terms of the, the work that I do and, and my passion for it. Um, when I was an officer, I had a coworker killed in the line of duty. We had a police psychologist who was a sworn member who really understood us, worked closely with the peer support team and the hostage negotiations team. And so he was very culturally competent um, and available to us. Uh, a year later, another one of my coworkers was killed in the line of duty, and we had had a changing from the police psychologist to a city psychologist who had no specialized training or experience with the first responder profession. She could be someone in the street department one minute and then the fire department and then the police department the next with no no experience working with this group of people so when my uh second coworker Dwayne was killed in the line of duty and she's doing the crisis mobilization briefing there's people in the room including myself and I of course knew who she was because I was on the peer support team who were just like who's this stranger in her house we've never laid eyes on her and she's speaking of how our brother just um has fallen and reading the room, she called me up to the front of the room to take over the crisis mobilization briefing and kind of go from there. And what ended up happening is I had peers saying, hey, don't know her, want to talk to you, you get what I'm going through. Um, can you talk to me about my marriage issue or this issue or that issue? And I said, I'm happy to as a peer supporter, but my skill set kind of is stops here and there's what you need goes beyond. And I had people that just would not take referrals to clinicians. And so I thought, well, and I looked and it was like, I just, there's no clinicians that I can find that are culturally competent to work with this profession. And so I started counseling courses to, be, to fill that gap. And it coincided with a relocation. My husband and I decided we were gonna re-up at a new um, 
agency in another country in Canada. And I was just going to continue my work there, straddling, going counseling program and being a cop. Um, but I ended up not being able to do that because of scheduling issues. So I just stepped out and went full time into getting my education to do counseling for and, and other mental health issues, uh, support services for first responders with full intention of coming back and still being a police officer somewhere, stayed in shape, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was like, I'm still going to go back. I'm going to go back. And the, when people realized, okay, there's a clinician who's specializing in us and there's many, by the way, um, just it took off and I've never been able to take the time to go back into policing. So that's, that's my why is I mm -hmm. saw that gap in the culturally competent clinicians and heard many a story of, of horror story actually of people getting uh, terrible care um, that I just said, I, I have to be part of the solution. Mm. That's an incredible story. Um, well, so then what have you noticed with your first responder clients in the last year with all of the chaos of the pandemic and civil unrest? Oh boy, where, how long do we have? <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's been a lot. Um, I'll tell you, I've been a clinician for 10 years and in the last year, um, it's, is the first time I've actually had to create a wait list because the demand is so high. So it's not even just what I'm seeing in terms of in the room. And obviously I'm going to speak confidentially about that, but just the, the demand itself has just gone through the roof. Um, to the point where I'm getting referrals daily and I can't, and I'm just trying to, again, kind of put them places where they could get good care um, or fold them into my days off or what I, whatever I can do. So that's the first thing is that more people are asking for help. Um, and some of them uh, is, um, I think, a cultural shift. And then some of it is this past year has been wretched for a lot of people in a lot of ways. So getting more specifically to your question, what I'm seeing in the room is, I don't know that I want to do this job anymore. Um, nobody cares about us. Nobody appreciates us. Um, uh, can't, you know, uh, the laws here in Oregon have changed. So like you can, every drug in the world is, is legal seemingly. Um, and I'm being facetious here, but so it's just like, so what, like if you can use all these drugs and there's no charges and you can't take people to jail because the jail won't accept them because of COVID and these mm -hmm. kinds of things. So there's just this kind of, what is my job anymore? And so that, that's an absolute recipe for burnout is, is you feel like you don't have any clarity on what your job is or feel like you're effective in doing your job and you don't feel supported for doing your job or you're getting conflicting information. Do this, no, no, do that. This, this week we're doing this. And so I'm seeing a lot of burnout and <clears throat> that's kind of the entry point as people come in burned out. And then, then I'm hearing the history where they've just been um, stuffing down traumas for years. And so I'm like, well, we actually have two things to work on here. We've got your burnout and your frustration with the anti-police stuff and the COVID stuff and you know all this other kind of business. And then we've got all your other history that you've mm -hmm. been limping along with, um, not knowing there's, there's remedies for this. And remedies is probably a pretty strong word, but there's ways to address those hurts. Um, and it's even extending into fire services. Um, 
you know, when they are trying to help someone, sometimes they even get verbally abused and other, other, other times physically abused because they're part of, you know, the, the government that's, you know, oppressing people or, you know, these kinds of things, or they're having, I know some have just gotten their um, uh, butts handed to them because they needed to put on their personal protection before they went in the house and the family members are losing their mind because they want them to come in. And it's, it's reasonable that they want them to hurry up and come in, but they have to put on their protection. They can't just say, oh, well, you might, you may or may not have COVID. Let me run in because your person's in distress and, you know, in, in medical distress. So it's frustrating for them as well. And you're seeing it across multiple first responder professions, not just one, oh, yeah. correct? Oh, all of them. I mean, and just the other thing is, is that, you know, most of them still have employment. It's not affecting their employment, but it's mm -hmm. changing the nature of it, you know, for, for police and EMS, or excuse me, for fire and EMS and police to a lesser extent, it's all the personal protection stuff that they have to put on. It's a change in the procedures constantly. You know, one day they're, this is how they handle a call. And then the next time they're like, no, we've actually learned that's not how we handle a call. So fewer people go in the house when there's you know, uh, care to be given. So there's fewer exposures and then there's, you know, so the, their procedures have changed, which is frustrating. Um, but then on a personal level, all of them or many of them are now part-time um, teachers at home. In addition, you know, in the time that they would come home and try to recuperate from their shift work, they're now coming home and homeschooling or dealing with a, um, uh, the financial strain of a loved one who lost their job or has had their job, re, you know, uh, reworked. And so they're affected by those changes personally. And one other thing that's seeing that's huge is a lot of people, particularly um, last year, less so more recently, although I think it's, we're going to have a resurgence of it with the George Floyd uh, trial and, or, you know, the uh, Chauvin trial, is their family members on the police side are saying, all these cops suck. You all suck, except for you. You don't suck. We know you don't suck, but all your coworkers suck. The whole profession, they're all this. Mm -hmm. And and the cops are like, hey, they're all like me. Like, so when you're insulting the profession as a whole and saying I'm the exception, you're still insulting me. And right. there's been there's been ruptures in family members and family uh, units because um, some family members take such a, an extreme approach and say, you know, all cops are, you know, bastards. Um, and sometimes the, the first responder I see is included in that umbrella and sometimes they're not, but neither one is good for them. And it's, it's caused chaos, uh, on the home front as well. Mm. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, there's a lot of challenges that go along with that. Um, Mm -hmm. Then what, what do you suggest these clients do then, or your clients do to cope with these stressors and traumas um, that they're seeing, not only on the workforce, but also at home? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, and I would say this to all first responders is that um, <clears throat> you have to be careful um, about uh, the assumptions you're drawing about the, the public's support of you based upon the opinions of a, of a very low vocal group of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm seeing that a lot. And I'm going to speak in generalities here, but I was talking with an officer and he's, he's just, he's crying. Like you know, people don't realize 
hello, first responders are human beings. This is crushing him. And he's like, why does no one support us anymore? Like he's been in this profession for a long time. Why, did, why are we all of a sudden the bad guys? And just really heartbroken because he didn't realize that anybody cared about him. And it's interesting because when I told him that I tried to pay for the coffee of a cop in line ahead of me, that I had other people kind of elbowing me, they, were, they wanted to. And he's like, well, where are those people? Why don't I ever see those people? And I was like, well, maybe you're in the wrong county, but um, <laughs> that might be part of it. But he, he actually had more tears to hear me say, there are people that support you. There are people that are doing things, but they are, you know, we talk about silence being violence. They, are, have been, they have been more silent to avoid violence being perpetrated against them. So look for those people that support you. Look outside, because you know, here's, here's this group of people that don't, that are vocal, that are you know, mm -hmm. uh, offensive, that are you know, violent, but look outside of that. Just almost kind of like when you look at the people that you work with and you're like, okay, these people are you know, abusing each other or abusing their own bodies with substances or you know, life choices or what have you. But, but you also have to remember there's other stuff out there and you need to ask what else is out there and actually make a point to limit your social media mm. or at least be thoughtful about your social media. Um, I had a client tell me the other day, uh, you need to tell all your clients just drop their social media. And I say this on YouTube. So be selective about your social media again um, so that you're actually ingesting the good stuff. We inject, we know to eat the, eat the good stuff. We know to drink the good stuff. We know to do those kinds of things. But what you ingest is also what you're watching, what you're listening to, what you're paying attention to. And so what you focus on expands. And mm -hmm. so focus on the good stuff. Look for the good stuff. Look for the people that are, you know, vying to buy the, the coffee or that are bringing the untainted food to the fire hall, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Look, look for those things because those people actually exist. Um, and then I think you also have to, and this is what I say to, to clients, the first responders I see all the time, is you have to figure out, well, how do I take care of myself? How do I control what I control? Because there's a certain level of people abusing you and mistreating you and and speaking poorly of you that is painful. And even the things that happen in your life, the traumas you see that are painful. Um, but Eric Greetings or Greitens, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. He wrote the book Resilience. He's a Navy SEAL. I love his book. He says, you know, we add suffering to the pain when we sit and rehash it, when we extend it and we keep thinking about it and we go home and talk about it and we talk with our coworkers about it and we go back to roll call and talk about it. We're like, can you believe this stupid person thought this or that or did this or the, you know, this group or that? you know, political agendas, blah, blah, blah. You add suffering to pain and that's optional. So actually make a pact with the people that you're um, in your social group and, and within your own head to not add suffering to the pain that's already there. Don't focus on what you don't control or what you don't like about life. Instead, really focus on what you do like about life and what you control and how you can take care of yourself in relationships. Hmm. Those are all really awesome tips. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, so then what do you, what do you recommend then for peer support teams uh, that they do to support their peers with these issues and challenges? Yeah, I think they have to, peer support teams um, sometimes regard themselves as critical incident stress management teams, mm -hmm. right? Like insofar, as 
as critical incident stress debriefing teams. Like when a critical incident occurs, then we respond versus there's a lot going on. There's a lot of stressors, even homeschooling. Everybody's the walking wounded or many are the walking wounded. I don't want to be alarmist here. So how do we moment to moment go have conversations with people? If, if we hear a group of people and they're all just having, you know, a, a complaint circle there, they're all co-ruminating basically. Mm -hmm. Is there something that we can do at the next roll call um, where we say, hey, um, and, and provide some, some kind of psychoeducation, some kind of training that says, hey, if you find yourself stuck thinking about this stuff that you're drifting off to sleep, you might want to try this. This will help get your mind off of it. When you find yourself complaining about this group of people, then you might want to actually go and, and do this other practice, gratitude practice instead. Be grateful for the, the peers you have and the great work you do together. Or if peers you have stink, then be grateful for something else you have in your family. So I think, I think peer supporters can take a very proactive role and a very active role in trying to facilitate the coping of their peers with the everyday wear and tear of the job through psychoeducation, through newsletters. Um, it's funny because one of the agencies I work for that I'm a um, uh, psych for <laughs> sent me an email yesterday and said, hey, we wanna, cause I just signed a contract with them. We wanna do a wellness program, where should we start? And I was like, why don't you just ask the big, the little questions, why won't you, right? So I was just like, all right, so here's what I'm gonna blast you with on the email with your biggest question ever. I was like, newsletters, little snippets, how to get better sleep, because sleep matters. All this stuff, when you think about not getting good sleep, and then you get all these stressors and demands and you're trying to homeschool, you're not very patient with that, or you're having relationship conflicts or financial strain. If you're not sleeping well, your emotionality is going to be so much higher, right? You're, you're just going to be so, it's like, think about it. Sleep deprivation is a form of torture to get people to tell trade secrets. It's going to break you if you don't get good sleep. So peer supporters could actually um, even contract with a local uh, sleep specialist and say, hey, could you do a 10 minute blurb on how to, on sleep hygiene or do a 10 minute blurb on how to combat this um, common sleep issue or, or talk about what resources are, refer them to sleepfoundation.org, that kind of stuff. So they have a lot of opportunity to educate and they have a, and, and intervene with someone that they see as, you know, particularly going downhill because they are seeming to be affected. Um, and then they have opportunities to normalize. That's the other thing to say, hey, I'm finding myself stressed with this stuff too. I'm finding myself frustrated. And I, you know, for me, I found this to be helpful, but to actually have that kind of, and this kind of goes into you know, the, the agencies is showing some leadership and saying, hey, I'm affected as well. And, but here's how I'm planning to walk through it. Um, mm -hmm. Instead of saying, you have a problem, here's what you need to do, right? Really kind of, recognizing that we're all um, challenged by this. And I think that's one of the things that <clears throat> helps me connect with clients. And even when I do trainings is I say, hey, I, when the riots here erupted, I was mad, I was angry. Like I, I was gritting my teeth angry because you're attacking my profession. You know, this I've been around this my entire life and it feels like you're attacking my dad, my husband, myself, my, my best friend. I was angry. And so I was forthright about that. And I said, so I had to shift my mindset and say, okay, what else is good out there? 
how do I be part of the solution? I had to work, walk through that. And so I think when peer supporters or leaders can say, hey, it knocked me on my tail for a bit. Here's what I had to do to recover. It gives other people permission to have that experience and do the same. Hmm. Yeah, and I think we've all had to go through that at some point throughout this, this last year during the pandemic, um, regardless of, of profession, but especially for the first responders or crisis responders, individuals that are on the front line. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that goes into my next question then. So you talked a little bit about what agencies can do to demonstrate support for their first responders. Um, what other recommendations can you give um, for those individuals during such trying times? Um, yeah, I think it's just an expansion on, on what I was saying is I think they have to be, um, and I can certainly appreciate, you know, especially the administrators, I can appreciate the tightrope they're walking because they're trying to support their, their um, you know, their employees, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's fire, police, EMS, whoever it is, dispatch, um, haven't even mentioned them yet, they're, they're certainly getting abused uh, during this, uh, this time, sadly. Um, but they need to uh, say, to vocalize and be more communicative. I think that's one of the challenges that, that agencies have historically had that administrators um, have been to the line before. And so they, they actually understand the line as much as we sometimes say, oh, they don't understand, they haven't been there in a while. And, and maybe there's you know, been some changes since they were on the line. But I think the line folks usually have never been administrators, so they don't actually understand the tightrope that the administrators are walking. So I think they sometimes have to be more forthright about that. Um, my dad was a chief for almost half his career and I heard a lot of his challenges as a chief because he wanted to do a lot for his officers, but he also needed to, to balance that with what city management would do because if he did too much for the officers, he was out by city management. And then they would find someone else that would do less and then the officers would get less ultimately. So he would have to figure out how do I do that? But I think he made the same mistake that other administrators do is he wouldn't always communicate that to them and say, look, I, I wanna support you more. I wanna do this. I wanna be able to do that. But my fear is, is if I give you all this, then I'm gonna be out or, mm -hmm. or they're gonna turn around and shut something else down. So. I'm not going to, you know, reveal my hand and just like get that all out there so that, you know, it, it, it undermines what the administrator is trying to do, but really communicate that support for their employees, really acknowledge what they know to be happening. And I just heard this um, from a client yesterday uh, where the administrators in an agency or locally actually met with a couple of senior officers and just sit and listened and took notes and listened and listened and listened. And said we're mm -hmm. going to have meetings and talk about it. We're going to check with in with you in a month. That made a big difference for the for the senior officers that had that meeting because then they felt heard and they felt mm -hmm. you know, they weren't just like okay no this is what you signed up for you know step off hey we're we're doing our best. They're actually taking the information in. And I think when it comes down to um, you know uh, feeling like uh, your work matters. Research shows it isn't that the supervisor gives you what you need all the time. It's that you believe they want to give you what they, you need. Mm -hmm. That's what actually matters. Um, and I think, and that's, that doesn't mean agencies get to just 
give lip service. Oh, we wish we could give this to you and then really don't actually make any efforts toward, towards it. But you, it has to be a genuine statement to them. And I think they need to know, um, I think sometimes ego gets involved and, and sometimes busyness gets involved. Administrators don't always explain things or communicate as often as they should to the line folks and to the, you know, the varying ranks, what's going on and why. So, and when you don't do that, people tend to fill in the gaps and it's, if they're in a bad mood or things are going bad, they usually don't fill in the gaps in a positive, <laughs> I don't have a positive explanatory style for that. It's usually a negative one. Um, so, yeah. That's well, my, I actually, I, I do have a few questions from some of our viewers. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to, to ask those to you now. Yeah. Um, Joseph actually says he's a forensic psychologist and he works with the sheriff's office and criminal uh, investigations. He mm -hmm. would like you to comment on use of appropriate short-term medications as well as ED, EMDR. Ah, uh, I actually missed EMDR a moment ago when you said stressors and trauma. So I'm glad, um, Joseph, that you brought that up. Um, Short-term medication, certainly it can help, right? When someone's in a bad way um, and they need a boost uh, until um, they can get through something, absolutely. But my adage is pills don't build skills. And I borrowed that from somebody else. You know, it's just wise. Um, and so you don't take, you know, ideally you don't take anxiety medication to deal with anxiety, the symptom, and not actually work on the source. like meaning for the rest of your life, you still need to work on the source, you know, and if the source of your anxiety is relating to, you know, work or that kind of, like, confront it, deal with it, face it. Um, EMDR, uh, for those that may or may not know what that is, stands for eye movement, so your eyes moving back and forth, desensitization or reprocessing, which is a mouthful, so I'll give you the uh, 10,000 foot view of what it is. So when you go to sleep, at night, um, between hours six and eight mostly, but it kind of cycles throughout the night. You have rapid eye movements. Your eyes are moving back and forth quickly. It's processing the drama and the trauma of the day. Um, so that when you wake up, you've, you know, that's why they say sleep on it. A lot of the stuff will have been processed and, and, and uh, you're better for having done so. But first responders don't get good sleep and they may not even sleep. Most of them miss the bulk of that REM sleep between hours six and eight. So they don't get that spontaneous rapid eye movement that allows them to process drama and trauma. So what we do is when the person's awake is we actually have them in a clinical setting, of course, have them do the eye movements and say, all right, what's the image that's disturbing about this event, the negative belief, the physical sensation, you notice the emotion. And then we just have them do their eye movements, let their mind just start working its magic, doing what it needs to do. Um, what typically happens is it allows the brain to process trauma that it didn't get to process before for varying reasons, and it desensitizes them to it. And I did it two or three times yesterday with clients, and I had somebody who's just like, a, I'll keep the expletives out, but he's just like, this is about the weirdest thing and the most effective thing. I can't believe how this, this isn't bothering me right now. This feels so distant to me. This is weird, pleasantly, like positively weird. Um, and I've had other people same thing. They're just like it because it works quickly. That one was quicker than usual to start and end in one session is pretty um, is not the norm. But then you reprocess it, meaning if you felt like I should have done this or that should have happened or these kinds of things, you typically rework it in your mind and have some clarity about it. So you're actually able to, to set it aside and say, bad things happen. I did my best. 
it's over. And the, the beauty of it is it's permanent. It's not like you have to come back and have a booster EMDR session for the, for the trauma. It's, it's done. And I did that for a client who's just like, who got well so fast that actually um, it influenced his independent medical exam. And they said, he doesn't have PTSD when he was evaluated. And I said, no, I know he doesn't. He did. <laughs> he doesn't now because EMDR did its job. Um, his brain did his job. And uh, I was just able to document it and um, you know demonstrate that he had it before he had EMDR. And then he reaches out to me a year later and he goes, it's still working, but I'm having some stress about something else. I'm not having any stress. I, I thought I'd be checking in with you later. It's still, it's, this still doesn't bother me anymore. And it just blows me away. And I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. So find a clinician that does EMDR. It is a fantastic tools. It's one of many, um, as is neurofeedback and alpha stem kind of helps with some of the brain being overactivated, but yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Thank you for touching on that because there's several individuals that commented about wanting to learn more about EDMR. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. And you, you can find it on EMDRIA. So the international association.org and they have it like a 10 minute video and then you can actually find EMDR clinicians in your area through that website. So that's a great resource. So it's EMDR international.ia.org. IA. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of our other viewers, Betsy had a question as well. She said that she's a law enforcement chaplain who works hand in hand with peer support. What suggestions do you have to help officers release the stress of the shift? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, um, release the, yeah, it's fantastic. I think one is usually when we get to the end of the shift, um, you go home and you recount all the, the, the frustrating things that happened or the annoying things that happened or that kind of stuff. So my approach, and I say that do this, not just with your shift work, but kids, you know, ask your kids at the end of their school day, what went well today? What'd you like? What were you proud of that you did? Or shift the, the things you talk about. Cause again, what you focus on expands. So actually have them have a practice transitioning from shift to home uh, so that they can um, have a gratitude practice on what they were happy about, what went well. Um, actually, depending on the, their shift and their sleep schedule and that kind of stuff, it might make sense for them to work out. But if they're gonna go home and go to sleep, you don't want them to go home, try to work out and then go to sleep because it's harder to do that. Um, yeah. But if they work day shift and they're off at four and they can work out at you know five, have dinner at six, go to bed at nine or whatever, then that's fine. Because that's a good way when you're keyed up like that and you're kind of tense from all that kind of business. It's, a lot of times you need to discharge that through exercise or um, doing something else that gets that energy, like offloading that energy. And, and if you can't do exercise because it's too close to your time to go to bed, um, like vigorous exercise, then doing other things like, uh, you know, taking walks, walks with the dogs, doing something else that um, helps them focus their mind uh, on something else and discharges some of that tension. So, but having, having what they call them launches and landings is having rituals with your family members when you come home where you're just like, I can tell you one bad thing about my day, but I'm going to limit it to 10 minutes because I don't want to be doing that. And then the rest of the time, I'm going to talk about what went well or things we're looking forward to doing on our days off or when, you know, vacations possible or, you know, those kinds of things. Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, Scott actually says that he's been in the emergency management for 15 years. 
Um, and they don't quite experience the same frontline issues as police departments, fire departments, and EMS. He'd be interested to hear your thoughts uh, for CISM and emergency support fields. Um, my opinion for CISM and emergency support field, I don't, is there, I don't, I'm not sure how to answer it. It's good. Like I've done, I've um, uh, gone to emergency um, command centers you know, for COVID and for wildfires and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. where we have, um, uh, you know, mental health people kind of walking around and touching base with people and, you know, trying to make sure that they know that they're there. And what's interesting is they actually, there's only a handful of people that actually said, hey, yeah, I'd love to take a walk with you and talk about and just kind of un unload my stress or I'm dealing with everybody else's stuff. But meanwhile, my family's at home potentially in the wildfire, my family's at home potentially being affected by this. So I'm actually having to abandon them to work on everybody else's stuff. So occasionally I had people that I would do walk and talks with and just kind of talk to them about the stress of leaving their family alone while they dealt with something else or just the, the stress of dealing with, with the other. Um, but it was interesting because I had some people say, I don't actually need to walk and talk with you, but the fact that you're here makes me feel supported by my agency. The fact that you're around and should I need you at some point, that is actually, that's, that's not a bank for me in terms of feeling like my, like people actually realize that this is stressful work that we have to do. So I don't know if that touches on, on his question, but that's kind of experience in, in doing that is making sure those people feel supported. Hmm. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. that. Um, let's see if we have any other questions. And uh, if not, I've got another question for you, actually, in, in the meantime. Uh, okay. You recently had uh, your presentation accepted for the upcoming World Congress 16 uh, mm -hmm. Wellness Admitted Certainty titled uh, From Office to On-Scene Vital Skills for Mental Health Providers. Uh, can you yeah. provide a little more information about this upcoming presentation? Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it because it, it's, <clears throat> it's a... Um, it's kind of a channel that's coming off of some of the work that I'm doing with uh, Fraternal Order of Police um, mm -hmm. and at, at the national level and International Association of Chiefs of Police. I'm on a work group there for us identifying um, or creating the vetting criteria for identifying uh, culturally competent clinicians. So as I mentioned, I like giving my intro how I got into this because it, it gives you my why, why am I doing this? Why is this needed? And I think most people understand it's needed that when first responders go to a clinician and the clinician says, well, why'd you have your gun out for the shooting, which has happened, or just ask for a different shift or uh, what's happened a few times is I now need therapy because of you, because, or started crying or had once somebody told me the other day, their clinician just started doing deep breathing because they started getting so distressed at the story of the first responder that the first responder started taking care of the clinician. And so, you know, so, so the work that I'm doing with FOP, Fraternal Order of Police, is to create this approved provider bulletin. So, okay, here's the clinicians, right? Uh, the work I'm doing with IACP is how do we teach agencies 
officers and um, agencies and officers primarily, how do you pick a clinician? How do you vet a clinician? How do you know they're going to be any good at what you need them to be good at? And so we're creating those you know, kind of one sheets and those kind of those those um, nuggets for people to actually use, um, which begged the question because I was like, but then that also means we actually have to make sure the clinicians know that the skills aren't transferable from the therapy room to which, you know, one, you got to be good in the therapy room. Let's just start there. But then it is, doesn't necessarily transfer you to being on scene and being good at that because you don't therapize on scene. Like, so you ask deep questions in the therapy room and get people to talk about stuff and unpack stuff and deal with, you know, kind of historical stuff that, that's affecting their current stuff. You never do that on scene. Um, and so part of my, part of my work, even as the, the clinical director for public safety assistance network, <clears throat> and, and I'll, I'll, uh, credit my colleague Drew Prakniak for this acronym, as he says, the team approach, there's T therapizing, right? So clinicians make sure they're really good at therapizing. They understand what EMDR is and brain spotting and neurofeedback and alpha stem and polyvagal and all that kind of stuff, all those things relating to trauma and then just relating to first responder issues altogether, non-trauma related. But then do you have people that actually are really good at educating? Uh, so that's the E on the, on the team. Are they good at going into a training setting at a police academy or in an agency and training in such a way that it keeps, keeps the people engaged. It doesn't tick them off because you're assuming that, that they are broken toys in the toy box, right? Do you are you actually able to, to do that? And some people are really good in the therapy room and they are terrible in the training room. So, you know, in, in the educational component, uh, it, they just don't have that skill set. I mean, my background in policing, I had advanced training in uh, training, you know, mm -hmm. I did the training for our, a lot of the training for our department. And I had advanced, basic and advanced training in hostage negotiations and crisis intervention. So that's the A. Can you assist with crisis intervention, crisis negotiations, hostage negotiations? Do you have the training for that? Because again, that's a different skill set than therapizing. It's a different skill set than educating. Um, and then the last one is M, the management, um, which is like managing peer support teams. Do you understand the peer support team needs? Do you understand how to work with them and, and understand the um, that you're there as servicing the peer support team who are in turn servicing the peers. You're not run. It's not a, it's not a clinician team. It's a peer support team. Do you understand how to manage it from the bottom by supporting other people so they can support other people? Um, and, you know, which also includes managing and developing wellness programs. So uh, when you get the big funny email questions, like I got yesterday, where do we start? Um, he, before he asked me that question, he said, I know you've done the research with the departments. So mm -hmm. does this, has this clinician done their work and are they, have they interviewed people that have won awards or have been recognized for having progressive wellness programs? And I've done tons of research. Like I've talked to many agencies and said, how do you do it? What'd you do? How did that, how'd you turn that around? What, how's it been received? What are you noticing? Um, and not all people are, are going to be aware of that stuff unless they do that research and they know where to do that research. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the gist of the, of the presentation is it's, it's for two streams. It's for the, the agencies who have limited budgets and don't want to get into your contracts with someone to do trainings or do this and that, and then only find out that you're, they're terrible at 
doing trainings are terrible at managing or making recommendations because they're the stuff they're recommending is from 10, 20 years ago. Um, and then it's for clinicians. So if they're in one of those boxes, they're therapizing and they, they're like, I kind of think I want to get into this domain. It gives them a sense of here's what, here's the skill set you need to work on. And here's where you might look to start building on that. So it's really for both, both tracks. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody involved. Well, I don't know about anyone else, but I know I'm excited to see your presentations in the upcoming World Congress. That's that's yeah. awesome. Thank you so much for um, expanding upon uh, the title. We have one more question from uh, Richia. Uh, they're from Northwest Florida. Uh, they work in EMS uh, and in the process of putting together a peer support team. They ask, what are some more suggestions you have to help boost morale that they can do in addition to a newsletter? Um, I think um, going to and talking with the teams individually, because a newsletter can be more impersonal, but I think some more of the relationship building, like I see you and I see you're struggling and you're not alone in this struggling. I think sometimes having those those either group meetings to acknowledge, hey, this has really been you know bad for everybody, and can we acknowledge that? And then can we take it a step further and and talk about how we would cope with it? I think mm -hmm. that's a bit more personal and allows people to ventilate those things as long as you don't let it devolve into a uh, bitching session. Um, and I think that can be really significant. Um, I think a newsletter gives them something in their hand to, to go back to and, and employ strategies you mentioned. Um, but I think that one-on-one -on -one contact or that contact with the group where you actually acknowledge um, that the morale, like nobody, this, this isn't a secret. We know the morale is bad and we know that you deserve better um, and we're working on it. And actually just even asking, do they have any suggestions that might improve their morale or their you know, and even if you can't employ them, feeling heard, it's really hard to get mad when you feel heard. Really hard. <laughs> well, thank you for answering that question. That um, That's all helpful advice. Um, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. Uh, if any of our viewers would like to learn more about Dr. Stephanie Kahn and uh, also to view her resilience and first responder family resources, you can actually visit her website at firstresponderpsychology.com. Uh, we have the link in the description, so feel free to cl click on that as well. Uh, and for all of our live viewers today, you can actually download a free preview of Dr. Kahn's book, Increasing Resilience in Police and Emergency Personnel, Strengthening Your Mental Armor, first edition. You can click on the MailChimp link in the description. Uh, this link will be available until um, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, if you guys are interested in purchasing her book, you can use the Amazon link in the video description as well. Um, to learn more about our upcoming World Congress 16 Wellness Admit uncertainty from May 25th through the 27th, 2021. You can actually visit our website, icisfworldcongress.org or click the link in the description. Uh, again, Dr. Khan, thank you so much for joining us today for our SISM Live series, where we connect with yeah. critical incident stress management subject matter experts live on YouTube.
uh, go ahead. Sorry, I would ask, uh, add rather that if people wanted a signed copy or a copy with a uh, special message written in it to, to their team, to their loved one, to themselves, um, then they can actually um, purchase that from my website, firstrespondersychology.com. There's a PayPal link, you just do that. I've got to put some books in the mail on Friday so uh, you can get it there as well with a signed copy or a clean copy. You just make, a, make the recommend or make the comment which one you want. And that's on firstrespondersychology.com, yep. correct? Okay, yep. awesome. Thank you so yep. much. Um, for all of you that are still watching, please make sure to join us in April and May, where we will have many SISM Live series coming up. And viewers will get a preview of upcoming World Congress presentations, as well as learning more about ICISF's refresher programs. Uh, again, if you've enjoyed this content today, make sure to give this video a like and be sure to subscribe to ICISF's YouTube channel so you don't miss out the next time we go live. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye.